Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is Fundamentals of Organizing, where we're talking with organizers about the craft. Today, our guest is Erica Smiley. We're recording much of this season from the road. I've been out traveling the country, doing one-on-ones with people from across the political spectrum. While in Michigan, a handful of one-on-ones were with union members. In one meeting, our conversation was abruptly interrupted by tense contract negotiations and talk of a possible strike. Look, the pandemic has workers rethinking what is most essential in their lives. This, along with parts of the economy booming and a tight labor market, means workers have leverage, and they intend to use it. One union organizer I sat with described a workforce more prepared to strike than at any time in their 25 years of organizing. From teachers to Starbucks employees to a newly unionized Amazon warehouse, this is a worker's moment. That's why we're going to kick off this season of Fundamentals of Organizing by talking with longtime labor organizer Erica Smiley. Smiley is the executive director of Jobs with Justice. She has long had a nose for where the next fight could and should be, pointing us in directions we might miss otherwise. Let's hear what she's got to say. Hey, Smiley, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, George. So I've found that people's early introduction to organizing says a lot about the path they took within the craft. How did you first find organizing? You know, it's so interesting. I don't know the first time I actually found it. I definitely remember my first action. I was in my teens. I can't remember exactly how old I was. It was in the mid-90s. And uh, a lot of workers were organizing at a local Kmart facility. And I didn't really know what was happening other than that they were facing discrimination and felt like they were being disrespected. And I think some of them went to some of the local churches. And so I remember our church at the time, St. James Presbyterian, rallied around them. And we won. I mean, it was one of the first time I saw that collective action got the goods. And it Mm. really wasn't until later that I realized that these workers were fighting for and ultimately won union representation with that, too. Mm. But it definitely was informative to me later in life because North Carolina, where I'm from, and this all happened in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina is one of the places with the lowest rates of union membership in the country. Mm. And Yet, you know, I saw I grew up and saw these mostly black women fighting for dignity and and fighting for themselves. And in fact, as a black person from the southern region overall, with my parents from like Virginia and Mississippi, I got family throughout the South. I think I carried some anger knowing that we had spent years and had such a proud history of fighting and yet still had, you know, some of the most backwards laws. So, you know, I guess it was probably somewhere in high school college that I actually knew to name some of this organizing. <laughs> I think That's early. I remember knocking doors for Harvey Gant at one point, who was going to be, you know, well, first black senator since Reconstruction, you know, and and being kind of exposed to how how far we still had to go as black people. Like I remember seeing a sign, for example, in one neighborhood that was like Harvey Gant dancing with a white woman, and there was no text on it other than it said "Vote Helms." vote for Jesse Helms. Uh, And so, you know, people are in high school, you know, we're kind of wide eyed and bushy tailed, you know, and like, we can change the world. And I think that was (laughs) one of the first moments I realized like, okay, we still have a a lot of fight to go. Who was one of the first people to teach you how to organize and what that they taught still sticks with you? But I think the first people I actually remember saying, this is organizing and this is what we're doing. I was in Chapel Hill. I was in, in college and workers who were organized with the uh, UE Local 150 were, you know, in, in 
constant battle with the university for all the right reasons. And they were mostly black and receiving low wages from the university. And I got to interact with some of the organizers and the workers who were really leading those, those fights and realized that this was, to me, this was kind of how to win. This is where the fight was. They obviously reminded me of the same women I had seen when I was a teen watching Kmart workers uh, walk out on the company. And so I related to that. And interestingly enough, right, I had, you know, I got to college and went into what was then the young Democrats, right, which was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was clearly much more connected to say the established kind of party. And I remember being in that club and there was like a debate about whether or not they supported affirmative action. And I remember being furious because to me, that was like a given, especially where I'm from and how I grew up and just like the need for equality and really the centrality of fighting white supremacy as a means of democracy that it, you know, you couldn't separate them. Mm -hmm. And there was this debate and I'm looking at them like, this is clearly not where it's at. And, you know, I won't spend a lot of time on then my own kind of path to the left, but I definitely related a lot more with the workers and the organizers who were fighting for dignity, not just politically and not just in the context of an election, but who were trying to win access to ways of governing. And I started getting really active in a lot of economic issues. We all appreciate this. We formed this organization called, and this was an acronym, the Alliance for Creating Campus Equity and Seeking Social Justice. It had a silent J. Uh, It was called Access. (laughs) And uh, we fought for um, things that felt more meaningful, like to me, at least like, um, you know, access and affordability to higher education and, Mm. you know, obviously solidarity with workers who are fighting for economic dignity. We did not shy away from race. And it was through that organization I was also then introduced to the U.S. Student Association, where I think is probably where I had my first grow training. And where Mm. I was introduced to the Midwest Academy model of things. So I got to meet Jackie Kendall and others. And Jackie, actually, who I know is about to turn 80, spent a lot of time with me, at least in the the beginning, like teaching some of the early foundations of organizing. And I'm, I'm forever grateful. But, you know, it's hard to even mention people like Jackie without talking about like the Eddie Acostas of the world. Like I remember I was still in school at the time as a leftist, as a socialist, right? They, you know, I was connected with Eddie, who was moving a lot of work in Southern California at the time. And he was kind of like helping to mentor me, this young socialist in the mix. And he's like, so what are you trying to do? You know, when you're done, you're about to be done with school. What are you about to do? And I was like, I don't know, you know, maybe I'll be like a a lawyer or something. Like I still hadn't, it hadn't clicked (laughs) that you could do this thing. Like for a lot of like, basically I need to find a job that allows me to kind of be argumentative and fight authority, but also do this on the side. And he was like, you know, we don't need any more fucking lawyers. And I was like, oh, okay. Whoa. Tell me what we we need (laughs) organizers. And I was like, basically I credit Eddie Acosta for my life path because (laughs) up to that point I was confused. And then all of a sudden I was like perfectly clear that, you know, this very cool movement leader who was taking the time out to have lunch with me felt like I was needed in, in a different role. And so you know, I started to do the work through a very different lens, not simply as something that I did as an extra activity on the side, but as something that I could do for life. And, you know, going back to the fact that I grew up Presbyterian, there is this thing about purpose, right? And being on purpose. And it was one of those things where organizing felt on purpose. I knew I had to do it 
whether I was paid or not paid, I had to find a way to have it in my life because it felt like the thing that I needed to do in order to not just be like angry all the time had the fact that uh, people who had been fighting, people like my ancestors, the people I grew up around fight so much and yet are still kind of held back, constantly held back. And so it felt like my purpose to be in the fight and to be in the fight in a way that was both constructive and strategic and ideally to win, obviously, <laughs> and to actually like, you know, to the degree that I could in my lifetime to move the ball forward for a generation. And so in that sense, I know that that's not a, a direct answer to your question about who taught me to organize. It was, a, it was many people named and unnamed, but yeah. that uh, more than anything, I, I was clear on um, what felt like my purpose in life had to be a part of, of being part of the fight. That's amazing. We don't need more fucking lawyers. That's, that's a that's, direct quote. <laughs> yeah, it's not hard to picture. For those that don't know, Eddie, a longtime labor organizer and with the AFL and impacted so many people. So, And then just for those that don't know, the, the Midwest Academy organizing for social change organizing manual for many of us, for I would oh, just yeah. say for decades was like, especially I think on campaign strategy was just... It was just kind of the go-to thing on the strategy chart and whatnot. So That's right. Just like a foundational thing, right? Just this introduction oh. of the idea of power. Uh, there were a few organizing offices you'd walk into and not find that book somewhere right. in the office <laughs> for, for decades. So, And still, it's worth going back to right now. So you once said the lens of the electoral map is one lens, but it's too narrow. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, when you look at the electoral map, what you see is like such a brief snapshot of the political viewpoint of a place. You know, it's like usually a presidential election or a midterm. It doesn't really tell you about what it would take to organize in those places. And so one of the examples that Sarita Gupta and I use in our book, we have a book out that's just out, The Future oh, yeah. We Need. One of the stories that Sarita Gupta and I emphasized there was the story of the West Virginia teacher actions in 2018. Mm. And we yeah. had some really good times engaging with a couple of teachers in particular, Allison Perry, who was the president in, uh, I think, Marion County, and, and Heather Nestor, who is president in um, Mahongalia County. I'm probably mispronouncing it. But when you look at the map of which teachers walked out first, it's like the three counties at the bottom of the state. And they're like three counties that if you just look at those counties through the lens of an electoral map, they're red, they're blood red, right? Like the super conservative, right? Like they voted against Manchin many times. <laughs> like yeah. that's, you know, right, all this right. kind of stuff. And Manchin is clearly no leftist. Right. But so, you know, if you're just looking at the lens through the lens of, a, of an electoral map, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't understand why the people in that county were the first to go, to the first to leave yeah. work and walk out and, and ride to the Capitol. And so I was really agitated by that and I also began thinking about where I'm from, the South in particular, right? And, and how on maps it is, you know, it is the red, reddest of the red. And it's seen as like the, the stronghold in many ways for 
the right in elections and in general. And, and there's truth to it. I mean, for both ideological ways as well as, uh, you know, structurally, I think that it is still the home of Confederate thinking, of radical libertarianism, mm-hmm. of this idea of the individual or state's rights over collective or, or national rights, of the ideas of kind of the benevolent master, the benevolent executive, mm-hmm. the benevolent whatever over, yeah. uh, you know, the submissive everybody else. But at the same time, like the people, the overall arching population isn't that necessarily. Right. And in fact, uh, the argument that we make is that people in these regions where they have long lost, if they ever had access to 20th century platforms for democracy, whether we're talking about voting and uh, voter suppression and gerrymandering or the right to organize and collectively bargain, which is fundamental to economic democracy. And, you know, you can't have one without the other. Right. So people in these regions have long lost if they ever had access to 20th century forms of doing that well, of actually exercising the rule of the majority in those ways. And so instead of saying we have to just write that off or cut that off from the rest of the country, Actually, it's an opportunity because a lot of the people in these regions have an appetite for something different, for something better. They aren't just trying to get included in what's happened over the last hundred years. They're trying to build a 21st century democracy that would work for all of us. And particularly in the South, and even more particularly among Black workers, I think there is this unfulfilled promise of the Great Reconstruction If you look at the period right after the Civil War, right, and you look at the constitutional amendments that came out of that period, you know, you see, obviously, the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery and forced labor and give us control of our our labor, which is, at the end of the day, the true foundation of, like, you know, the legal protection for workers to negotiate, uh, not commerce, as our current law says, right? You had the 14th Amendment, which started to define citizenship. You had the 15th Amendment, which started to define who could vote. And over the last 150 plus years, our movements have been trying to expand on this promise. And our our opposition has been trying to roll them back, many to pre-Civil War interpretations. And so in that period after Reconstruction was very publicly known, particularly by Reconstructionists, that it was an attempt to integrate this formerly uh, enslaved worker population into a democratic society. So In essence, it was the last time that the country as a whole was attempting, albeit very imperfectly, to build a multiracial democracy. And so there's still a promise of that that has never been actualized for many people, particularly people I grew up around, people from where I'm from in the South. And so there's still a hope and an aspiration to fulfill that promise of a multiracial democracy economically and politically And it doesn't involve us looking backwards to what's worked since the New Deal. It, in in fact, involves us looking forward to imagine something new, to imagine a a democracy that's actually worth fighting for. I hear you describing it. There's like many places that democracy can happen or not happen. And we tend to kind of only look at it or there's an overemphasis maybe on the kind of electoral map. And I think it's just like, I know that's going to stick with me. And I think, you know, I've thought about this a lot over the last few years, how you're one of the leaders and staying true to some other maps that I think are maybe not getting as much attention, but equally important. I've always appreciated that. No, I appreciate especially, that, George. <laughs> 
this period where every we've kind of electrolyzed organizing so yeah. much. I mean, I think much of it was a good call, but I think it it has left a lot on the table. And I think I actually think we haven't even gone back to understand what got lost in that kind of shift. It's so true, right? It's mind-boggling to me that over the course of those last 150 years since the Civil War, and even during some some of it, right? Even before, like I think it's W.B. Du Bois who, who equates the walk-off of formerly enslaved Black people when they just left the plantation. You know, he said is the largest strike in, a, in American history when half a million formerly enslaved Black workers simply left the plantation and in search of what they deemed as the democracy-loving forces at the time. You know, and many joined, in fact, the Union Army and all that stuff. And so, you know, you have this history I have this history of black workers and migrant workers, not just from Mexico and Latin America, but also from the Caribbean and elsewhere. And even many Southern white workers who have been fighting for over 150 years from Mm -hmm. being in the mines uh, in Alabama and Kentucky to, uh, you know, truant slash basically convict laborers in the steel industry and also in the mines uh, to the Memphis sanitation workers uh, all the way up to, you know, the, the Nissan auto workers in 2017. And even mm-hmm. the, the predominantly, I think it's 85% black uh, workers who are in the Alabama Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, you know, black workers have been long calling movement leaders into the fight to help. Uh, it's not like mm-hmm. we aren't doing anything. And so it, it's mind-boggling to me that we would make them wait, that we would leave what I feel is one of the most militant bases of the labor movement. They aren't necessarily union members, not yet, but they are still right. the most militant base of the labor movement. Why would we leave that power on the table? Right. Well, and then we want that power later when we need... When we need know, to elect somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's not... This is you know, a different kind of state. But I mean, my phone is ringing off the hook from funders when they're like, we got to move Joe Manchin. It's like, yeah, it doesn't really work like that. You got to invest in everyday people there for, you know, decades, not, you know, two months to be able to create that kind of context. That's right. Like, what is the infrastructure in Mingo County in West Virginia? Is it just the teachers union? Like who is invested in that place? not just to move Joe Manchin, but to support what already exists, which is a very militant base of, of basically the descendants of the, the Blair mine struggles, right? The Blair mountain struggles yeah. and who like have an appetite for justice and have an appetite for democracy and probably don't see uh, either political party necessarily delivering on that for them. So what is the relationship to people in that County? Cause clearly if we just look at the electoral map, they've been written off. And if you look at where the money right. goes in West Virginia, they've been written off. And uh, and how does that help us long term? If you really want to move yeah. the Joe Mansions of the world, how does that actually meet right. our self-interest? Exactly. Speaking of workers that maybe weren't weren't seen until they were seen, the uh, workers just had a big win in the Staten Island Amazon fight. Right. What can organizers and all of us learn from this campaign? Yeah, this has been a such a powerful and much needed victory. 
just speaking for myself, you know, we needed a victory. We needed this. We didn't even know how much we needed this. And there are lessons that we will be unpacking for a long time. But the one that strikes me is perhaps most important in this particular moment is to understand the role and the centrality of fighting white supremacy and, and fighting for equality played in this fight, as well as the too close to call union election in Bessemer, Alabama. So mm-hmm. you think of this, both of these were led by black workers, black and brown workers in Staten Island, but really sparked by black leaders. And mm-hmm. both publicly stated at different moments that they didn't understand how Amazon could be so vocal in support of Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's murder and mm. not provide proper safety equipment or fair compensation or not abuse workers who are in their plants. They didn't understand that. And you've got in Bessemer, you've got a plant that's 85 percent black and is one of the plants where Amazon spends the most to have off duty police officers surveil workers. And that's some independent research out of Michigan just uh, confirmed that and is now looking at other places in the country. And of course, you know, we all know the story of Chris Smalls and there are many others, you know, who are unnamed, the Derricks, the Angies, the Casios of the plant who asked for protection during a global pandemic and were shunned and, and in fact arrested and kicked out of the plant in ways that were really violating their, their basic rights. And so, you know, you've got a situation where workers at Amazon saw their contribution to the movement for black lives being on the shop floor and fighting for dignity, fighting for a union wasn't just about better wages and health and safety. It was definitely about that too, but it was also the forum through which they could fight for dignity and respect and equality. It was the place where they could act on their values in a way that perhaps they hadn't seen before. And so as organizers, it's actually really important to note that when Big Mike, who is one of the leaders in the Bessemer plant, said, this is our Black Lives Matter movement, it's important for organizers to then know and understand that as the thing that is motivating workers to stick their necks out and take actions that could cost them their jobs and their livelihoods, that could create really unsafe situations for their families is not always just the the jargonistic, you know, uh, the the 99% versus corporations. It's not always just about better wages and and the fight for fair wages. That's a part of it. But if you don't understand these individuals as whole people who are having to negotiate with capital every day, who are having to negotiate how they're perceived based on their race and their gender every day, if you don't organize with that in mind, you will lose. And when you organize with that front and center, not just as a, a side thing where you have perhaps the civil rights group as your ally or this gender <laughs> justice group as your ally, when you organize that with that being the issue front and center, you win. And it's not new. It's not new. We've seen it, you know, the auto workers, when they finally centered equality in their fight in the 30s, they began to win. Time and time again at Smithfield, when they built a multiracial coalition within the plant, you know, they after 14 years, right, they won. And so it's not necessarily like a new thing that the ALU victory has taught us. It is a very old thing, especially in this country, to know that that's what, what wins. 
And I'm hoping that as organizers and movement leaders, we take that as a reminder and get back to the basics, not just the basics of like door-to-door relationship building Mm -hmm. and one-on-ones. That's obviously key, but to the basics of what it takes to build a multiracial democracy and seeing the fight of workers at Amazon, at Starbucks, at REI, at all the places where they're in motion, at Apple, seeing what these workers are doing, not simply as fighting for their own rights and standards and dignity, that's part of it, but actually seeing them as essentially being the Marines for democracy. They're the first line and and are trying to to take up space so that we aren't just satisfied with a, a compromise that perhaps just alleviates a little bit of how many people can vote on one day of the year, but is actually vying for the ability to govern throughout the year uh, at their job sites and, and throughout the country. So on this, you've got a book coming out with Sarita Gupta, yeah. The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. I'm guessing some of the answers are in there. What does the future <laughs> of worker organizing look like? Or, well, okay, maybe that's grand, but you, what does is, what is future organizing workers look like? Well, so the future we need, it felt so important for us to write this thing for a lot of reasons. One, to have two women and particularly women of color writing not simply about our stories or our struggles, which is more common, I guess, (laughs) but actually writing about our own vision of what is to be done and to center the narratives of worker leaders in that discussion. Because oftentimes in organizing and, and I think in a lot of different traditional models, there's a real delineation between leaders and organizers, you know, and we purposely tried to blur that because a lot of the workers who were leaders in these campaigns were also the brains behind setting the strategy. And so we didn't want to just like put them up, you know, and we even see this with the AOU case, right. And in Staten Island with the victory, like the, the press often looks for, you know, whatever white guy behind the scenes is actually helping to figure it all out. When in fact they, did it themselves. They, they had a plan and that's why everyone's so surprised, you know, um, that's, that's what racism looks like. So I say that, um, that was, that was another intervention to actually have a lot of the worker leaders talk about their experiences with the strategy and, uh, as well as their own individual experiences, you know, coming into the work. So to blur that line on purpose. And then, you know, the, the main intervention, which is, you know, in the battle of ideas, right. Is, is this, understanding that democracy is the thing that we should be fighting for and that our opposition is very clear that democracy is a threat to them, their, their individual liberties, the Koch brothers, the, the right, like even the, the Trump base, which is not quite the same as the Koch brothers on the right, but is a very different. They want democracy for a very specific group of people, not for everyone. So we want to be really clear that we want democracy, that democracy is not just voting once a year for somebody, but actually including the majority of people impacted by a thing in the governing and standard setting for that thing ongoing and in the enforcement of that thing, that that's, that's what democracy looks like and that you can't just Mm -hmm. have that in civil society. It also has to be something that is practiced in the economy. And I tell you, I wish I could say I was the first person to come up with this idea. I'm not by far, you know, I mean, there were whole fights, even if you look in the pre new deal era, right. And, and Joe McCartan has a great book on this, but like, you know, there's, there are whole movements and they were not saying we're organizing for a union and they weren't saying we're trying to collectively bargain. They were saying 
we want industrial democracy. That's like, that was the call. That was what they were fighting for. That's how we got the new deal. And so, you know, I think we're trying to clarify that in trying to actualize this promise of a multiracial democracy, that that has to include democracy uh, in the economic part of our lives. And collective bargaining is a pathway towards that. It's a pathway that we've been able to establish and that unions will practice, right, to negotiate the conditions of, of work, to negotiate employment relationship. And our book argues that why should we just keep this practice in the narrow arena of what employment looked like in 1935? It's right? such a small group of people who can use that these days. Employment has changed so much. The nature of work has changed so much and the future of work promises to change again and again and again. And yeah. so why aren't we allowing collective bargaining to adapt to the way employment is organized today, including allowing people to negotiate not just with their immediate boss, but perhaps the person who ultimately benefits from their labor, the ultimate profiteer, mm -hmm. um, the 1% at the top of that supply chain or of that fissure, as David Weil might say. Why are the topics of bargaining, collective bargaining, narrowed just by what's defined by the National Labor Relations Act? Why, right. why shouldn't we be able to, to negotiate for things far beyond that? And that's the argument we make, that the scope of collective bargaining must be expanded and broadened to the conditions that we face today, that companies and executives are able to negotiate enforceable agreements with each other all the time in lots of different ways and lots of different channels. Why are we forced to negotiate solely through this one very limited channel? And then I think, you know, the other argument we make is that why also are we limiting the practice of collective bargaining to employment relationships? Why not negotiate enforceable agreements between people who share other economic relationships and the stakeholders of those relationships, whether it's a tenants and their corporate landlords or people with hospital debt and the banks that are financing that uh, or the hospitals themselves or people with mortgages and the banks financing those mortgages. Like why not directly renegotiate standards when conditions change? Why just wait for the government to enforce it when we can be a part of governing that ourselves? And I'm not saying that because I'm anti-government, I'm very much pro-government, but democracy requires platforms or pathways for everyday people to be a part of that governing process, not just somebody off to the side that we elect in an election once every few years to, to do it for us. And so that's the promise of what we think collective bargaining does. It, it creates a pathway to democracy in our economic lives. It creates a pathway to industrial democracy. It creates a pathway to... Uh, setting standards in any given sector or geography, and it creates a pathway to enforceable standards and agreements in economic relationships that may not be centered around employment. And I think, you know, we argue that none of this will be successful without centering the fight against white supremacy and mm -hmm. gender discrimination and patriarchy. And, you know, there's actually on the same day that the Amazon workers won in Staten Island, we had another big victory on the other side of the globe in India, where garment workers, mostly women, and we actually lift up their story in the book as well, they had been organizing against these global brands. They were trying to win agreements with their direct warehouses and whatnot, and like, you know, unsuccessful. And then they were trying to negotiate a floor wage across country borders with some of the multinational brands, the Gap, H&M, Adidas, and were like really unsuccessful. And a lot of the unions who were representing the workers were men, even though 
a lot of the members themselves were women. And so a few years ago, they formed this gender-based violence committee across unions, across country to negotiate specifically around gender-based violence that they were experiencing on the plant floors, which is unfortunately very common, not just in some of the supplier countries, but even in the U.S. and some of the consumer countries of the global north. And it was through this campaign that they were actually able to get the branch to the table. And on uh, 1st of April, same as the AOU victory in Staten Island, they were able to convince several brands, including H&M, to sign a global agreement around gender-based violence, which goes above and beyond some of their initial collective bargaining agreements with their uh, immediate shops, including things like preemptive retaliation, basically assuming that if anything happens to some of the stewards and union leaders on the shop floor, the assumption is that it was in retaliation for their organizing. It's, the burden is on the company to prove that it wasn't, which is you know, almost unheard of in, in U.S. contracts these days. Mm-hmm. And so you know, this was another place where centering gender as the, the key fight and was the motivating fight for many workers in, in these factories, perhaps to the dismay of some of the leadership who wanted to really just focus on the floor wage, which is still important. But centering gender won. It got the brands to the table when they wouldn't come otherwise. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, GAPS also signed an agreement, which was unheard of up until very recently because they had long been leading the opposition against things like the Bangladesh Fire and Safety Construction Fire and Safety Accord and and other attempts to negotiate with global brands. So, you know, we, we make the argument in the book that centering the fights against white supremacy and patriarchy aren't just the right things to do, but not doing so will guarantee your failure. <laughs> and in fact, they're mm-hmm. needed. They're yep. needed to win. It's a part of your strategy to win. I'm going to read it. <laughs> I'm going to read it. Like that's seriously, the best, that's the best response, George. I'm going to read it. You've really described how this kind of this distinction or hard line between, you know, organizer, kind of maybe more elected leader sometimes, sometimes not, and then just kind of rank and file, like has not really served us or often not served us well. And also like who's in those roles says a lot. Like you said, it's not a new thing that worker organizing is a fight against white supremacy, but it's gotten lost in, you know, so many labor fights. So that is just hanging with me. And then I hear you saying the collective bargaining structures that we have legally are like, they're, they're both like a product of radical imagination. And we, in in the spirit of radical imagination, we should be creating the next ones and not just settling for what we have. And both of those are like, I feel agitated and inspired by them. It's true, George. And I was just saying this actually last Thursday in a room that I was not expecting to be in that was full of state treasurers (laughs) to their credit who supported or wanted to figure out how they could support Amazon workers and their role as shareholders and, and people who are managing investments in the company. And, you know, I said to them, who among you is the Francis Perkins of this era, right? Like, Mm. stop talking to me about what structures currently exist and talk to me about what you think we could build out of this. You know, spark my imagination. The New Deal didn't come because they were just building new structures to mimic something that happened in 1865. They were building new things. The whole Department of Labor came out of the New Deal. They had an imagination that there should be an entire department focused on labor and that it wasn't sufficient for it to be anchored within commerce or under business 
you know, even even labor departments in academia oftentimes were anchored within the business department. I know the labor school at Harvard right. was out of the business school and then they, you know, separated. Right. And so someone has to have an imagination for that. And, you know, you think about it like sometimes I look at the rooms that we're in as organizers, as movement people. And, you know, those rooms, there were science fiction 50 years ago that we would all be in those rooms mm-hmm. together, interracial, openly queer, you know, women leading. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what's our science fiction vision for the next 50 mm. years for what might be possible? I think that's it's critical. And this is why, you know, we emphasize the new map so so much, because we've got to engage people that have the capacity to imagine something different. And that's hard in places where people still have access to the 20th century mechanisms, like in New York and California, and and maybe it's hard in places where they used to have but recently lost them, you know, and in like the the Midwest, the Great Lakes region. But for people that have never had it or, or long lost it, you know, there's perhaps a, an imagination or an appetite for something different. And I think that's the big agitation of the book. We put out some ideas and some strategies that people are testing that hopefully point in that direction, but we don't claim to paint the perfect vision of democracy, economic or otherwise. Uh, We really just want to get into the practice and the framework of trying to imagine it together and making that the foundation of what we're, what we're fighting for. It feels like we are in the period where that just might happen. I think so. I, you know, I have to believe it, George, to keep going. Right. There are definitely, there are definitely some hard mornings where I'm like, Oh no, what if, am, I, am I off? Am I way off? Was I born in the wrong time? No. But I know sometimes it's like, what did King say? You know, only when it's dark enough, can you see the stars? Uh, so mm. yeah, I got to hold on to that when I'm feeling discouraged. <laughs> yeah. Well, from where I'm sitting, it feels like it's the right moment. Yeah. So yeah, Smiley, thanks so much for no, doing this. This was great. You totally, this has been a light in the day, man. I appreciate it. The field of community organizing has been electoralized. A field that not so long ago largely sat at elections, today is all about them. We have moved from fighting to get to the table to actually playing a role in running it. This is a good thing. But a sole focus on an electoral map? That comes at a cost too. I hear Smiley asking, what about an economic map, a militancy map, an anger map? a map that is grounded in a real understanding of the history of the country and the role that specific regions like the South play in shaping what's possible today. What maps do each of us need to consider in our work? When the financial crisis of 2009 hit, we were at a crossroads. The question in front of us was, do we fight to keep what we have or do we use the moment to reimagine what's possible? Smiley is calling us to reimagine what's possible, to not be constrained by what we already have, to see what becomes possible if we organize in different places, if we make room for new leaders and give space to the creativity that will emerge from having to organize in more challenging contexts. You can learn more about Smiley and Jobs with Justice at jwj.org and on Twitter at SmileyJWJ. You can find her and Sarita Gupta's book at thefuturewineed.com. I'm writing about the fundamentals of organizing at georgegale.substack.com. I hope you'll check it out. This podcast was produced by Fundamentals of Organizing and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. 
Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Stacy Wood. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. See you next time.